0: experimenters. You know the type. As children we called them precocious. They're the ones who are always asking why, why, why. In middle school they were sometimes called mischievous, seeming unable to resist finding out what would happen if... and in high school they were called nerds because they seemed to obsess about the most unusual things. As adults They brew beer, they collect anvils, they travel, they rebuild car engines, they watch birds, and they join fantasy sports leagues. They seek to understand the rules of some endeavor and then figure out what happens if they break those rules. Yes, this is pretty much everyone. In some area of our lives, we all find ourselves obsessing about how things work, why they work that way, and what we could do to make things better. Unfortunately, the area of our lives that we spend the most time on isn't the one we are the most curious about, our work. How many experimenters do you work with? The kind of people that make you ask, when did you have time to do that? If your answer isn't, I am that person, then I have a question to ask, why? What has dampened your curiosity? Well, it turns out that there are four factors that limit our curiosity. And my guest, Dr. Diane Hamilton, documents them in her book, The Curiosity Code. She evaluated me and I was surprised at what I learned about the limits of my curiosity. Welcome to Intended Consequences, a podcast from Conversion Sciences, I'm Brian Massey, and I believe that anyone is capable of using behavioral science to predict the success of their marketing campaigns. Marketing magic is real, and I'll teach you how to harness it.
1: I think we tend to only think in terms of what everybody else is doing, some, and, and you know, instead of breaking new ground, sometimes it's comfortable to to do what's working right now. But sometimes. You have to kind of go outside and get fresh eyes.
0: Dr. Diane Hamilton is an expert in emotional intelligence and behavioral science. She's an author, radio host of Take the Lead Radio, and the creator of the Curiosity Code Index, which we will dive into on today's episode. Curiosity is a topic that is at the core of everything marketers do. We're all about experimenting, discovering data, and getting answers when it comes to website redesigns, launches, and digital campaigns. More importantly, I think that curiosity is a doorway into the mystical peak experiences of that we call flow. So anything that limits my curiosity is something that needs to be addressed. Let's find out what the four limiting factors are and how I scored on her evaluation. Most people got into to marketing and business because they wanted to be creative and change hearts and minds and the challenge is that when we build that beautiful sandcastle with drawbridges and, you know, a functioning moat and everything, and then, you know, the the business comes and says, you know, we really just wanted a beach. Uh, it can <laughs> be pretty deflating. Um, and I think that, so there, there are two, I think, really two big, I don't know if you'll call them myths, but there are two big subjects that you tackle in this. And the first is that people think, well, I'm not a curious person. And I want to talk about the the relationship between curiosity and creativity.
1: We all start off highly curious. And then around age five, uh, we start to lose it to, and it starts declining pretty rapidly. And the same thing with creativity. It, what, what they show it 98% of two-year-olds are creative geniuses. And by the time they're 18, it's like 2%. So it, it, it's the same kind of thing. We start off. Uh, very, very curious. I can remember, um, being on a bus in, Vale uh, Vail with my husband. We were going skiing and there was a little, uh, girl with her mother, a Hispanic mother and her daughter were in the back of the bus and you could hear the little girl the whole way going, por K mama, por qué? for K uh, for, for, uh, about a hundred times on the, short trip. Or if you don't speak Spanish, that means why, mom, why? And any language, you know, they all start that way. And I thought it was ador- so, so adorable. But then I turned around and looked at the woman. I think she didn't find it quite as adorable <laughs> as I did because she'd heard it so many times. And it's just like our teachers. You know, you get into school, there's a point where you, you get burned out a little bit trying to answer every single question. So our, our questioning you know, gets limited after a certain age. And that can be, you know, an issue for later because a lot of people are influenced by their um, environment and by, uh, you know, these the voices that we tell ourselves in our heads about, you know, what I'm going to be interested in, what I'm supposed to be interested in, uh, what's good, what's not. You know, we, we have all these different things that go on in our minds.
0: So there's curiosity and then there is satisfied curiosity. We're all curious. I'm wondering if there isn't a, and with the FATE format, um, this would, I think, fall clearly into the environment and technology section. So FATE is fear, assumptions, technology, and environment. And these are the factors that affect our, not our curiosity, but our, I guess, our ability to, um, or our willingness to uh, embrace and follow our curiosity. Is Is that a fair assessment?
1: Right. When I did the research, I studied, uh, thousands of people for years to find the right questions to ask to determine the four or how many areas I ended up with four, uh, areas that, uh, were holding people back. And they are, I use the acronym of fate to, to make it easier to remember, but it's fear, assumptions, technology and environment. And those are the four areas that everybody seems to struggle with. And you know, when I initially was looking at that, I was expecting to have fear be you know, just such a huge factor. But it was really interesting to see. It was not that uneven, the distribution between the four different factors.
0: Is there a a kind of an equivalent dopamine squirt that happens when we satisfy our curiosity, um, similar to the the things we get from the the data, the the things that uh, marketers and advertisers are playing on right now, uh, especially designers of... Apps like Facebook that are just designed to continually give us these rewards that keep us scrolling—is that different from curiosity, or does curiosity have a similar effect?
1: No, you know, it's very similar, which interested me because I was in 15 years in pharmaceuticals, and so I, I did a lot of um, looking into that. And I thought that you know, you do get this sense of peaceful fulfillment, you know, and you want that that good sense because, but we also have this fight and flight response. that has set us up to be afraid of things from the past. You just don't know what it is that's going to kick that in based on what you've experienced. So all the uh, biological signs are, are there for, you know, to, to improve curiosity, you're going to get definitely going to, feel better. And actually they found that they live longer. The more curious you are, 30% chance of living longer. So that was good. Um, but, uh, so the, the, the science is behind it that we really want to develop curiosity to feel better and, uh, live longer, but we also have to look at the science of what's stopping you. And if you have, uh, that fight or flight response that's definitely going to slow you down. And you know, in the past, we we needed to be curious. I mean, all animals—if if the if bird's only eating from one bush, they're l- overlooking some potential future uh, meals if they don't explore. So we all have this sense of uh, needing to explore to some extent. But we, you you need to look at what's kind of inhibiting that.
0: Is there a, a um, pathological or neurotic side to this <laughs> when I'm trying to avoid something like? Going and uh, uh, following a rabbit hole down some, uh, data, some data will often be a great way to procrastinate. Um, are there people who are too curious?
1: It's funny. There is, there's different types of curiosity. There's state and trait. And state is that kind of squirrel. You know, the, the, you get distracted for a second, something fla- flew by, you go, oh, that's interesting. Color, what was that? Or whatever. So we're not talking about quick, perceptual, external types of curiosity. We're talking about epistemic trait, internal curiosity. And there's actually two types of trait curiosity. You can have the diversive, which is what you're talking about, which is motivated by boredom. And you can go aimlessly down a a rabbit hole and be not as productive. But that's not what we're trying to develop. Obviously, we want to work on acquiring knowledge. And that's why there's goal oriented, problem focused ideas within the results of the assessment to to get you to develop this really strong trait uh, specific curiosity that will lead to um, innovation.
0: So we we talked a little bit about how marketers and advertisers can manipulate our minds to um, keep us doing what they want us to do. How can marketers and advertisers use our natural curiosity to engage people mo- more beyond the um, the manipulation? But how how do we leverage our net our our visitors and our customers' natural creativity? Uh, in situations where we've got web pages and advertisements and funnels and all of the things that marketers spend their time perfecting
1: well, I, I think with any industry, whether they're marketing or they're just anything that that you're dealing with in a business setting, I think it's really easy to get into status quo thinking, to look at what competitors are doing, to look at what others in you know an industry are doing. I, I gave some examples in the book of some that thought outside of their industry in terms of um being innovative i had a, an example of a hospital in, in england where they had a hard time switching patients from bed to bed they were just not efficient and they were having a big breakdown it was costing them a lot of money and so they uh one of the leaders actually happened to see a, a formula one race car event and watched these guys take apart the car in seven seconds to turn uh put it all back together without any problem at all and he thought well if they can be that efficient how come we can't so he brought them back to their hospital and they gave some suggestions that actually helped improve efficiency by 50%. So I, I, the thing is, is I think a lot of people are so used to status quo thinking that, you know, we've always done it that way, or we don't do it that way around here. Or And I think there's got to be some questioning, sometimes fresh eyes from other areas. I think a lot of times I teach some marketing courses. I actually wrote, wrote a brand publishing course for Forbes a while back. And I think we tend to to only think in terms of what everybody else is doing some, and, and, you know, instead of breaking new ground, sometimes it's comfortable to, to do uh, some, what's working right now, but sometimes you have to kind of go outside and get fresh eyes.
0: Well, and it's safe. Um, I, my experience of a lot of marketing departments is number one, they have a lot to do. They have a lot to cram in. And in order to shorten the negotiation time with, uh, the, you know, the, their bosses are the people that make the ultimate decision, you tend to just go with safe. You go with um, what you think will work, but also what is going to be uh, easily approved internally. And uh, that is, uh, you know, in terms of satisfying your curiosity, that's kind of the, the biggest challenge, I think, with marketers is in being able to find time to experiment and, and be curious and follow these uh these rabbit holes and be willing at the end when, when they're curious when when their curiosity is satisfied to be disappointed because it wasn't as cool as it as it was gonna be or something like that.
1: And those are great learning experiences. And what you're talking about really requires CEOs to buy into the need for it. The way, you know, Google gave a certain amount of time and different companies give a certain amount of time for pet projects or whatever it is that it's really important. And that's why um, I go and I speak to so many CEOs about building culture from the top down. And I, I think I told you all, before we were on the show, I was just at a CEO meeting um, in Birmingham, Alabama, and we were talking about The culture and how important it is from the top. And it's really interesting because I was actually talking about emotional intelligence quite a bit in that talk. And actually, if you look at the level of emotional intelligence, there was a HBR study that they published where CEOs had some of the lowest level out there. And that's saying a lot because they, that's lacking interpersonal skills, that's lacking um, empathy and all the things that are required to have a really well-functioning organization, communication-based organization. So we really need to get a lot of these CEOs on board to see the importance of not only culture, but the specific uh, ability to, to give people this level of curiosity, the time to build it, I should say. And that will lead to innovation and that'll keep them from being the next uh, Kodak uh, blockbuster situation. Because it, with uh, in, you know innovations taking over, a lot of jobs are going to be automated, especially in trucking. Uh but they're in a lot of industries and we need to, to let people explore that.
0: Do you wanna um you wanna take a moment and define uh, emotional intelligence and, and what that encompasses so that our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with it have some context?
1: Well, emotional intelligence is really your ability to understand and recognize your own emotions as well as those in others. And so there it's broken down, it depends who you Whose definition you choose? Daniel Goldman wrote a very important book about why emotional intelligence is is more important than I can be more important than IQ. So your EQ is your emotional quotient or your measurement of your emotional intelligence. And so there's really personal and social aspects to it. And your personal is understanding yourself and social is understanding others. And as long as understanding yourself seems interest, I mean, simple enough, but it, it can be very challenging for people to really recognize um, how they come across to other people. I, I remember working in uh, an industry, many like in the 80s, where they used to rate us every year on our concern for impact. And so they were that was long before Goldman wrote his book in 95. So that was really ahead of their time. They they cared how much we cared about how we came across to other people, and that's a, that's a big factor in how you get along with a lot of people. I, I've had uh, people say things to me as leaders who really just had no idea how deflating what they said could be, and that they had a very low level of emotional intelligence. We often hear uh, Steve Jobs as an example of someone with low uh, emotional intelligence, but in some respects he had high levels as well because he was very driven and, and motivated in some aspects of his um, ability to, to understand people. but. He almost used it in a manipulative way sometimes, but uh, emotional intelligence is so one of the most critical things. I am mean, writing about perception right now and everything keeps coming back to emotional intelligence communication and it comes back to curiosity as well. So, you know, it's a very important aspect of what people need to get along uh, and uh, communicate well at work.
0: So, um, if I, if I think about that, that's an interesting dichotomy, the internal versus social, uh, emotional quotient. And if I think about the nature of my curiosity, I know they're not interchangeable, but I tend to have a very internal curiosity. So I am, uh, more likely to pursue my curiosity about things I'm interested in. And it's a, kind of a solo thing. I'm on. I'm, I tend to be less curious about people than some people I know. The what I call the flaming humanists, those um, high-rated uh, NFs on the Myers Briggs Type Index, that just instantly want to know the dog's name and will remember all of that and that sort of thing. Um, is there a distinction in curiosity um, as well or is it does it play out in the uh, the fear assumptions technology environment uh, model which by the way I took the assessment so we'll look at that in a second here
1: it's a little bit different because you're you're not looking at you know things like empathy and you're basically looking at what keeps you from asking questions what keeps you from exploring things so it, it's much more of an internal thing, uh, than emotional intelligence. Cause emotional intelligence is more about how you interact with other people. If you have a high level of emotional self-awareness, uh, which is a part of that internal form, that personal form, uh, then you had like 92% of teams have great high energy and performance. So it has a big impact, uh, on other people. Uh, so it, it's just a different animal, but, uh, you know, and when we get to curiosity, we're looking at things that we can do to help ourselves, but when I actually certify people to give the curiosity code index training, like leadership consultants and HR professionals, I do teach them a couple of different uh, techniques. One's to help people work on their own level of curiosity on an individual basis and create this action plan that's measurable and all that. But they, they also have another activity that they create a leadership plan to help them overcome all those issues that leaders are struggling with, like engagement and communication and whatever is their top issues and giving them um, feedback from the employees that have gone through this training about how they can help them be more curious to help them uh, improve in all those areas. So I do touch on it in two different ways in the training.
0: If we've got curiosity, like just running out of our ears, it's really the barriers the things that are in the way that um that we want to pay attention to now you have the um curiosity code index um i took that index let's see how i scored and you can talk a, a little bit about the things that um cause fear our assumptions the technology we use and the um uh, the environment we're in to uh limit our desire ability um confidence in pursuing or using our creativity. So first on fear, I scored 60% out of a hundred percent. Um, this was actually my lowest score. What does that mean?
1: Well, that's typical for people to have fear as an issue. You know, I mean, it's, we've had past experiences that, uh, have maybe shut us down a little bit. And it, the whole point of this is recognizing, is it failure that you're afraid of? Is it embarrassment? Is it loss of control? Is it any of the factors that come under fear? And within fear, a lot of people have had bosses who have said things to them. I, I had a boss a couple of years ago. I um, remember going to him and, and you know, he's, uh, he told me, he wanted me to do a, an activity. And I said, great. I'd be happy to do that. How do you do that? I've never done one. I never had to do one. No one ever taught me how to do one. It wasn't something that was anybody necessarily should know how to do. And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that. And I, I was so taken back. I was like, wait a minute. Does that mean he thinks I'm an idiot? Or does he think my boss was an idiot for not teaching me? (laughs) You know what I mean? For a minute. But since I'm so old at this point in my career, I should say, I, 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 you know, I later brought it up to him. I I said, you know, that was really kind of insulting, you know, to say that to me. And he said, say what? He, He had no idea what he said. And I told him what he said. And you could just tell he had no idea that would shut somebody down. And if if I had been younger, that would have probably made me never ask a question again. And if I'd gone to the next company, you wouldn't know that that, I had that as baggage of why I'm not asking questions.
0: Yeah. And I think this is a big one for marketers. I'll, I'll personalize it. Oftentimes, especially when I started as a consultant and there was so much to learn, I, I was afraid of the embarrassment. I was afraid of saying things that um, maybe I uh, didn't have enough years of experience in. And this, I think this is a huge one for entrepreneurs, and it, especially in the client relationships. So uh, this is something I'm going to be paying more attention to. The next one is assumptions. Oh, and incidentally, there is an action plan here that, that your pro- report has written up for me. Which is going to help me with that A is assumption. I scored seventy five percent out of a hundred on this. uh talk to us about how assumptions uh keep us from exercising curiosity.
1: Well assumptions are really what we tell ourselves in our heads right It's that voice that we all have and it it brings to mind when I hear a voice in your head. I think of Dr. Katz. you ever see that cartoon on Nickelodeon. And- He's a psychiatrist. It almost is like the old Bob Newhart show, where he's it's kind of a comedy. No, I haven't Cartoon seen it. sketch, but he, he well, he has comedians come on to the show as guests, you know, and they're on the couch and they say funny things. And I remember one guy, uh, one comedian said, you know, I, I don't mind the voice in my head so much. I just wish it didn't have a list. And I think about that whenever I think about voices in your head. But that's really what it is. We tell ourselves, I'm not going to be interested in this. I'm just, you know, I know it's too much work. Why do I even have to do it? If I do it again, they're just going to give me more work. Last time they just gave me another assignment, didn't pay me for it. You you go, we, we go through all these things. I mean, with, you know, so even subjects, you know, I took it when I was young and it was so boring or I had a teacher I didn't like. Why would I want to do it again? And there's just a litany of things <laughs> you go through your head, right? And it's something that can hold so many people back. And I think if you can recognize and pinpoint what you're telling yourself of why you don't do things, that that's a big step forward.
0: Yeah. The the one that really jumped out at me on this was the not necessary Um I will, you know, I've got plenty to do, plenty of deadlines, plenty of people are qu- uh, counting on me and so if I take a moment to um uh read an article on quantum physics because that interests me, uh there is the, the guilt feeling going in and a little bit of that guilt feeling on the back end like wow, I just spent, you know, 30 minutes going down the rabbit hole on YouTube watching quantum mechanics <laughs> videos. But um uh, there's also this like refreshed feeling, like I, I, I get a, a real boost from it when I let it go.
1: Well, dopamine—you feel better if you look into it. So, yeah, it, it's it's definitely a, a big factor that holds a lot of people back.
0: The next one was technology. Now, I scored an 88% on this, uh, which is probably not surprising because I I use technology to satisfy my curiosity every single day. Uh, but talk a little bit about what you mean by technology and how it limits our curiosity.
1: Well, I think there's, there's different uh, ways of looking at it. Sometimes people use it too much or they don't use it enough. So, and if you use it too much, you might not know the foundation behind why things work the way they do. If you ask, uh, your echo for every answer instead of knowing math, for example, you, you, you wouldn't understand the math and you'd never be able to create, uh, something if you had that inclination. So you have to kind of, you have to know the basics just like you would, uh, in school where they teach you everything to, that leads up to it. With other generations, maybe they had less exposure to, uh, technology and that could cause them to be uh, hesitant to try it or they've been trained in the past and as soon as they've learned it they given they get a new phone a new this a new that and they go, they just barely learned the last one and then that can be frustrating and so you know there's technology overload there's you know there's so many reasons why we we have uh either using it too much or too little and i think it, it it's it's a hard uh fine line to, to know where it's the perfect amount but it's good to recognize if you're over-relying on it and not understanding the basics or you're under-relying on it and not keeping up.
0: And we have so many choices now. I often find myself going, okay, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to map out this idea that I've got. And then I get a little stopped. So am I going to do this in a Word document? No, maybe an Excel spreadsheet. Oh, I could take it over to Airtable and add some, you know, uh, some interactive (laughs) graphics. And you know, what always breaks that gridlock for me is whiteboard. Just... Erase the whiteboard, grab a pen, and go, go edit on that. Low and tech. Exactly. So I'm kind of <laughs> removing the tech issue. So I think that's really what showed up for me as uh, as I was taking the uh, the assessment. Uh, last one is environment. I got a 64% on this. So apparently, uh, I am not uh, not feeling that my environment supports my curiosity, which actually is ironic since you know we're built on curiosity so tell us more about this what what does this mean for me
1: well it's not necessarily your current environment it's everything that's shaped you growing up and all your relationships from family to education to work to you you name it every teacher you've had uh your your siblings telling you that sounds stupid why would you be interested in it your social media posts where you're afraid you're not going to get a, enough likes you take it down you know i mean it's just everything that you could think of can I- inhibit us. And it's, you know, people want to be liked. If their friends are all doing something, well, you want to be the one that's going, no, I don't want to do that. Well, okay, I'll do that. But then you maybe didn't do what you wanted to do. There's so much for me. My family was super sports. Everything was sports. And I didn't care about sports, but um, I was interested in business, but nobody was interested in business in my family. And so it wasn't until I was older that I got to do the things I really like to do because, uh, you know, we we try to get along, you try to, to fit in, you try to to do what you have to do. But I think as we get older, we can think, well, what was it that we liked when we were young that no one else liked? And maybe I should look into that a little bit more, because I mean, teachers have to teach to the test, they have curriculum, they have things they got to deal with, and they can't answer every single question. So you don't, I think it helps to look at what, what have you liked in the past that you just haven't explored because of things like that.
0: Well, for me, what showed up was work relationships because in my past, I'm I'm famous for trying to work for people. I apparently have an authority issue um, and uh, (laughs) I'm I'm glad that rather than knuckle under and be a good employee, I kind of followed my uh, curiosity and and started Conversion Sciences because it really has resulted in a lot of happiness. You talked a lot about how CEOs and, and business leaders can encourage curiosity in their teams. Can employees encourage curiosity in their bosses?
1: Well, you know, culture is definitely easier to go from the top down, but I think a lot of uh, people that I've talked to have opened up the dialogue with people uh, at work. And if you have a boss that's receptive, just like my boss, you know, I think when I was young, you would have been afraid to go to him and say something like I I need this to make me more creative or I need this to make me more more curious. But I think if you just realize that they don't know, I mean, they have that imposter syndrome thing going on. They're worried that they're going to look stupid. I mean, if you look, at uh, at all the leadership research, a lot of them pretend like they know the answers because they don't want to look like they don't know. So I think if you could bring it up to them, you know, that you're trying to improve your uh, yourself, you think that you want, you can be more innovative and creative to to come up with greater ideas. If we had uh, the ability to ask questions and pose ideas, because I think a lot of bosses have said, don't come to me with problems unless you have solutions. But then that, shuts down finding out about problems. If you're a person that can't possibly know the solution, then then you're not, uh, you know, then no one wins in that situation.
0: When you get back to the office. So when do you feel like it's okay to put your work down and play or learn something new? For me, it's often on Friday afternoons when the deadlines are met and things are winding down. I've gotten purposeful about tapping these natural times when the bonds of my mind relax, allowing me to follow my curiosity. The other time for me is when I'm on a deadline, believe it or not. Sometimes I have to allow myself to renegotiate a deadline if I'm learning something that will improve my performance in the long term. Something that might apply to my deadline, but might also cause me to miss that deadline. So when do you find yourself following rabbits down holes? Do you feel guilty about it? Does your team support it? Do they even know about these times, this work? And if not, why not? How could you configure your work world to indulge these moments of exploration? I think you should look into this. That's it for now, scientists. Thanks for listening.